Good morning, everyone. So good to see you all here on this beautiful morning. If you come and find your seat, we'll begin. I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. I hope you can say that this morning, that you're glad to be here, that you came here to worship the Lord, to um, experience Him, and to give Him the praise that He's worthy of. So we're going to start off our service right away with a rousing classic old hymn that praises the Lord, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. And I think it's appropriate if you can, if you would stand, let's worship the Lord together. together this morning as God's people in this place that he has brought here at this place and this time for his purposes. If you are you're visiting or you're new here, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church. We're, we're glad you're with us here this morning as we celebrate both what God has done and also remember this weekend, a particular Memorial Day and all of that entails. A couple of things I want to mention um, before we kind of get into things this morning. A couple of things. So next Sunday, following the service, we'll have our annual meeting. And so if you're a member here, we'd really encourage you to be part of that, to hear what 
God is doing through the church, what we kind of see for the future going forward. Um, we just encourage you to make that a, a priority. On the back of your bulletin, we have the list of the names of people who are been nominated for various positions that we'll also vote on at that. Also, on the 4th of July weekend, right? the 4th of July is on a Sunday this year. And so, because of that, like, you all probably know better than I do here, right? getting through town on 4th of July is not really a viable option. And so, we won't have a Sunday morning service on the 4th of July because most of you couldn't get here. Right? It's practically impossible. Right? So we'll have, a, we'll have a service on Saturday evening, July 3rd, in kind of lieu of a Sunday morning service. And then on Sunday, when we have the parade going through town, like we want to be present in the community. We want to be a blessing to the community. Right? Like Jeremiah tells us, tells the exiles to seek the welfare of the city when they go off into exile. Right? We want to do the same thing here. We want to seek the welfare of Three Lakes. So we want to be present. We want to be involved with our community. So one option for doing that is we're going to kind of distribute water and flags along the parade route as part of um, just kind of blessing the community. We're going to give out water. We're going to give out flags. Um, so if you're a part of that and kind of the team that's working on that, you can contact the church office. We're also looking for people to just donate water that we can give out. So if you want to donate that, you can drop that off outside of the church office. At the end of July, we also have VBS coming up, and we want that to be another way to bless the community. We want families and young children to come and to be blessed by that. But that takes a lot of manpower to pull off. And so if you're interested in volunteering for that, you can contact the church office, or you can talk to Sherilyn. She'd be happy to hook you up um, with a way to serve and to bless our families that way as well. So as we, we continue in our time of worship this morning, one way we want to invite you to worship God is through your giving. Right? And so there's boxes on the back of the, the, back of the sanctuary that you can drop tithes and offerings in. Right? If you're visiting, you're not a regular member here, a regular attender here, like, please know that we're not asking you to give. Right? This is just an opportunity for our regular attender to give to what we're doing as part of the church. Like if you're visiting, we want this service to be a gift to you. Right? But if you are a member, a regular attender, and you want to give, you can do that at the back, back of the sanctuary, or you can give online at tlefc.org slash give. So will you, will you pray with me as we prepare our heart to come before God? Father, we, we thank you for this the chance to gather here. That each of us who has walked through these doors this morning has different things going on in their life, different challenges, different trials. We all have different backstories, different history, and yet by your sovereign hand, you've brought us all to this place at this time, in this moment, right now for your good purposes. And so we thank you for this chance to gather as your people. We thank you for this worship team who will lead us in song that we can praise you. And would our hearts this morning be tuned to singing your praise, to singing your 
glory again. But other distractions, other concerns fade away for the moment that our heart can be fixed on you. God, would you be glorified this morning as we sing to you, as we hear your word, as we we come into your presence, and would we leave here conformed more to the image of your Son. And this morning of Memorial Day weekend as we we remember those who served, those who gave their lives for our freedoms, including their freedom to gather here. And we we praise you for the gift of of memory and remembrance. We're struck by how often you invite us in your word to remember what you have done. You've given us minds to remember and to reflect on and to be impacted by things that happened in the past. They would mold our future. God, we thank you for that gift of memory and remembrance. So God, as we, we prepare to sing this morning, as we prepare to hear your word, God, would you again quiet our hearts, focus our minds, so we can bring you glory this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So as you all know, tomorrow is Memorial Day. In uh, England, they call it Remembrance Day. And it is a time when we remember those who gave their lives to protect the freedoms that we enjoy. So I want to just take a minute uh, to just ask you, if you know anyone personally or of anyone who died in the line of duty, either military or law enforcement or fire and rescue, can you just raise your hand if you know of any? I'm sure there should be lots of people. So I'd just like to take a moment to just be silent and let us remember and honor those people with you. Just a minute. And it's also true that this Sunday and every Sunday, we gather to remember what Christ did. He died so that we could have freedom from sin and death. He, gave, he died to give us life and liberty. And so uh, this Sunday, we want to, to remember that. We're going to now sing a song called We Will Remember. And it's about the, what things that God has done in many ways throughout history and in our own lives, but also to remember the gift of freedom from sin and death that he gave to us. So in that spirit, let's stand together if you can, and uh, let's do some remembering.
ate our food, food that he knew how it's grown, food whose secrets he knew because he called forth all things. Worthy is the lamb, for he submitted himself to death on the cross. Worthy is the lamb, for he submitted himself to the justice, injustice of men, that we might know the true justice of God, grace, love, mercy, compassion. Jesus, we bow before you because you are worthy, worthy of our praise. You are worthy, worthy to receive all honor, all blessing, all glory, all power. You are worthy. You are Lord. We praise you this morning, even as we remember and we recount your great deeds. But Lord, we know we only say a portion of them. For from eternity past, you have been doing great things. Lord, remind us, remind us that you continue to do great things even now. By your stripes, we are healed. We lift up those, Lord Jesus, who are hurting. Those, Lord Jesus, who are losing hope. May they lift up their eyes to the Lamb of God. Caught in the thicket, given for us, this Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We worship you. We glorify you. We lift you up. On this day, when we remember that not only did you die on the cross, you rose up from the dead, but you also sent your Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit might be with us to lead us in all ways, to teach us about you and how to be like you, to walk with you. So we thank you and we praise you, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You are worthy to receive our praise. You are worthy to be worshipped. Amen. Let's continue our worship by responsively reading scripture from Colossians 3. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Response. Bear with each other and forgive one another. Any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. We're going to sing one more song before Pastor Tim comes and uh, brings the word to us. Um, 
So I'm sure, I, I don't know, we haven't talked about this, but I think he's going to, he often says that everything in Scripture points to Christ, the Old Testament included, and what he'll talk about today will do that. And uh, St. Patrick once uh, has a prayer attributed to him that talks about how Christ should be before, behind, and above. So, And the point being that when people look at us as Christians, they should see Christ somehow, some way. And so we're now going to sing a prayer that we ask God that that would be true of our lives, that as we live our lives, as we minister to people, talk to people, just uh, live our lives, do our jobs well as unto the Lord, that people will see Christ. So let's sing this prayer together.
Christ, would you be all around us? Let people look at us and see the work of Jesus in our lives. Would they see the Holy Spirit living in us? Would you be glorified through how we live our lives? And would the people around us be drawn to you because of what we say and how we live? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <coughs> We're going to be in Ruth chapter 4 this morning. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there, or uh, there's one in the seat in front of you if you want to grab that, or the verses will be on the screen as well. So this is our final week in the book of Ruth. We've kind of walked through this story, and so we'll kind of draw that to a conclusion today. So like I, I've never been one to see many movies in movie theaters. Vanessa and I were trying to count last night, and like in the 14 years since we started dating, we've seen maybe like three movies together in theaters. Like, I'm not like entirely sure why that is. Like I enjoy movies, and I enjoy the experience of watching movies in the theater, but we just have never made that a priority, something to give our time and money to. Right? So I just haven't seen many movies in theaters. But one movie I did see in theaters was the original Iron Man. Like, I, like, it came out in 2008, and I, like, I racked my brain this week. It like, drove me crazy trying to remember why I saw this movie. Like, I see, like, hardly any movie, but I somehow saw this movie in theaters, and I don't know why, and it's irritating, but I can't figure it out. But I saw it in theaters. And so, like, I, like, I enjoyed the movie, and, like, but I don't remember being, like, especially excited to go see it. Like, it wasn't some big comic book nerd going in. Like, I didn't even know who Iron Man was. I just thought, oh, this is a cool action movie. And, like, one thing I 
do know that I had no idea how significant that movie would be really in, in movie history. Like in Iron Man, it's significant, it's significant because it's the first of what is now 23 movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Now, like here's what you need to know about the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Of the 12 highest grossing movies of all time, five of them are Marvel movies. Five of the top 12 ever are Marvel movies. Combined, these 23 movies have earned $22.5 billion in U.S. box office receipts alone. I mean, they average like they average like a billion dollars per movie in revenue at the box office. So if you're if you're not familiar with the Marvel universe, right? It features superheroes like Iron Man and Captain America and Hulk and Thor and Spider-Man and other ones who no one cares about. Right? And they all they all exist in the same universe. And like collectively, they're known as like the Avengers. Right? Right? But all that, all the Marvel Universe stuff was in the future when Iron Man came out. Right? When I watched it, I thought, oh, this is just a fun, standalone superhero movie. But you could get a little peek into the future watching Iron Man if you hung around till after the credits. The credits rolled, and then if you had some patience and stayed through the credits, another scene all of a sudden started to play. And in this scene, the movie's main character, Tony Stark, he returns home to find a mysterious man standing in his living room. And this man said to him, you think you're the only superhero in the world? You've become part of a bigger universe. You just don't know it yet. And Stark replies by saying, who are you? To which the man replies, I'm Nick Fury. I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers Initiative. We're like, is Samuel Jackson saying that? So it sounds way more impressive when he says it. Like, but that's what he said. Like, that's a quote. Like, I can't do his voice. But like, and with that, like, the screen goes dark, and the stage is set for this vast and complex story told over the course of 23 movies and counting. Like, and most of these 23 movies, like, they're focused on just one hero. They stand on their own. Like, you don't need to know anything about Thor or really, like, appreciate a Captain America movie. And occasionally these like, stories intertwine, and sometimes they all come together in like, the Avengers movies. But usually you can appreciate one individual movie without knowing much about the whole thing. But all the movies in this universe, they end with one of these end scenes. Like after the credits roll, there's another scene that pops up. Right? And the purpose of these scenes is always to zoom us out and to help us see kind of the bigger picture, to see how everything in this universe is tied together, intertwined. They all end by pointing us to the bigger picture. And that's what Ruth chapter 4 does. Like it causes us to zoom out and see that this story of Ruth it's part of something far bigger. Like at its core, right, the story of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, right, it's a pretty small, insignificant story. Right? Bethlehem is a small town. Naomi and Ruth have typical day-to-day concerns, like how to get enough food to eat and who to marry. 
Nothing about this story on the surface indicates that it should be all that significant. But what we see in this story is that God is at work. God is sovereign over even everyday people and everyday problems. And he uses those everyday people, those everyday problems, to teach us about who he is and to cause us to zoom out and see how he operates in the bigger picture. And when we do that in Ruth chapter 4, right, here's what we see. And we see that God is at work right, to turn hopelessness into joy through the work of a willing redeemer. Chapter 1 of Ruth right, saw Naomi in this hopeless situation. And she's bitter. But as we trace the events of this story through the end, we see that the work of a willing redeemer will turn her hopelessness, her bitterness, into joy. And so if you're, if you're here visiting this morning, or you're, if you've missed the last couple of weeks, like, let me just give you a quick recap of the book of Ruth up to now. So there's, there's a famine in Israel in Ruth chapter 1. So Naomi and her husband Elimelech, they leave God's promised land of Israel, of Bethlehem, and they go to the land of kind of their historic enemies, to Moab. And while they're there, they go with their two sons, Malian and Kilian. And while they're there, Malian and Kilian marry Moabite women named Ruth and Orpah. But while they're in Moab, Elimelech and Malian and Kilian all die leaving three widows. But Naomi here is like, oh, there's food back in Israel now, and so she sets out to return to Israel. But before she returns, she encourages Orpah and Ruth, like, you go back to your families, you stay here in Moab, it'll be better for you. And Orpah quickly agrees, because it makes sense. But Ruth commits herself to Naomi, and to Naomi's God. And so Naomi and Ruth travel back to Israel together, when they return, like, Naomi is bitter and empty and hopeless because of all that she has been through. She is hopeless because she has two problems that don't have obvious solutions in the moment. Two, two big problems that overarch this whole book. One is food. Like, how are they going to get enough to eat? Like, they're widows. Like, they don't have an obvious source of food. That's one big problem. It's kind of the immediate problem. And the second big problem is family. Right? There is nothing more important in Israel than your family name being carried on. And without an heir, like Elimelech and Naomi are in danger of having their family line come to an end. And so the rest of this book is all about fixing those two problems. Fixing the need for food and the need for family. And so in Ruth chapter 2, Ruth goes to Boaz's field and he meets, she meets Boaz, and he provides for their need. Like, he gives them more than they need, and more than enough food. Like, that need is met in chapter 2. But then in chapter 3, like, Naomi hatches this plan to meet the need for family by having Ruth go to Boaz at the threshing room floor and, like, try to get Ruth married to Boaz. And, like, Ruth and Boaz agreed to that plan, except there's one small problem. At the end of chapter 3, Boaz reveals like, there's a nearer kinsman, a closer relative who has the right to marry Ruth first. So chapter 3 ends with us wondering how the need for family is going to be met in this book. Is it going to be met through Boaz or is it going to be met through this 
nearer kinsman. That's where we pick up the story in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1, we read, Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. And so two things to notice here. One, in chapter 2 we talked a lot about how God will work through seeming coincidences to bring about his purposes. Like how Ruth just happened to go to Boaz's field when she could have gone to any field, but she just happened to go to Boaz's and it met their need. Right? And then Boaz just happened to arrive as Ruth was arriving. God will work through those seeming coincidences to bring about his purposes. And here, the same thing happens. Boaz goes to the gate to watch and wait for this nearer kinsman, this other guy who has a right to marry Ruth first. He's going to sit there and wait until he sees him. It could have made for a long day. But almost before he can sit down, like who should come along but the nearer kinsman? Like it just, just so happened. Like, oh, he just happened to come along at the same time. And like these coincidences, they're, they're subtle pointer to God's providential hand right, at work throughout this whole story. Like, nothing in this book happens outside of God's direction and control. Right. The second thing to notice, like Boaz calls this man over. Like the, he says, according to the NIV, like, come over here, my friend, and sit down. Right. But that Hebrew phrase, that the NIV translates my friend is like, Poloni Maloney or something like that. It rhymes. It's like, a, it's like a funny name, and it's really it's like a nonsensical term that means, like, hey, Mr. So-and-so. Like, he doesn't call him by his name. But, like, of course Boaz knows the guy's name. Like, he's a near relative. Even the narrator who wrote the book probably knows the guy's name. Yeah, we aren't told what the man's name is. And just, so don't miss the importance of that. Like this chapter, really this whole book, it's all about how important it is for a name to be carried on. How important it is for Naomi and Elimelech's name to carry on to the next generation. One of the prevailing questions of this chapter is like, how is Elimelech's name going to be carried on? Names matter, especially in ancient Israel. And by not giving us this guy's name, the author is telling us something about him. He's telling us, like, this guy doesn't really matter. Like, he's not worth knowing. So pick up the story in verse 2. Boaz took ten elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so, right? So the kinsman comes and now he calls ten elders, making like an official kind of legal transaction going on here. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi has come back from Moab and is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. And we could spend a lot of time on the ins and outs of how this like, system of guardian redeemership 
work in ancient Israel. But for one thing, we don't know exactly how they were doing it at this time. It kind of changed throughout history. We don't know exactly what practices were in place during the time of Ruth. And two, we could get lost in the technical weeds of like how it worked, and it would just obscure the big picture. So let me give you just the oversimplified version like, of what's going on here. Naomi is selling a piece of land that belonged to Elimelech, right? or possibly they already sold it before they went to Moab, but she's trying to find someone to buy it back for her. Right? But in either case, like, Naomi is saying, I, I can't work this land. I need a redeemer who will work this land in exchange for caring for me in my, own, in my old age. She's trying to find a redeemer who will buy this land and then in exchange care for her. Now normally in this kind of redeemer situation, the understanding was that the, the redeemer wouldn't get to keep the land. He would pass it on to the heir of whoever he bought it from. Like he would pass it on to Naomi and Elimelech's heir when that heir was old enough to work the land for himself. But, if there is no heir, then there's no one to pass the land on to. And whoever bought it gets to keep the land. And so just imagine this other redeemer in this situation. Like, here comes Boaz. Like, he's offering this man a chance to buy land from Naomi. Uh, to buy land from a woman who is a widow beyond childbearing years. Her sons have died. They're it looks like there's going to be no heir to give the land to. And so in exchange for taking care of Naomi, this man will get to add a valuable piece of property to his real estate portfolio, which is an opportunity that, that does not come along often in ancient Israel. And so like, if you're a, this is where a like, cartoon, right? this is the point where like, his eyes will like, turn to dollar signs, right? And like, he's just like, jackpot. Right? This is golden opportunity. Like, this seems great, like too good to be true. Again, for us as readers of the book, this is a, a gut-wrenching moment. Like, we've been set up through the first three chapters to want Boaz and Ruth to be together. And it seemed like so close to coming true. But then all of a sudden, this nearer kinsman comes waltzing into the story. It seems like he's going to ruin everything. Like he says, I will redeem it. I will be the one to do it. Like, and we want to like, scream at Boaz. Like, Boaz, what are you doing? Like, it's, like, it's almost like you're trying to get the guy to take the deal. Like, could you like, talk about how the land's like, not that great or something? I like, try to put him off the scent. But no, like, Boaz is like, here, this is a great deal for you. Take it. Like, what are you doing? Everything seems on the cusp of falling apart. But Boaz knew what he was doing. In verse 5, Boaz continues with a, oh yeah, one more thing. Verse 5 and 6. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, by the way, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the property of the dead with his property. So there's that focus on name again. At this, the guardian redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. It seems unlikely that this other redeemer didn't know about Ruth. Like, 
How could he not? But if possible, like he, he thought that the law of like having to marry the widow didn't apply to Ruth because she was a Moabite, like she wasn't part of, she wasn't ethnically from Israel. Right? In any case, like all of a sudden, like Ruth gets added to the equation, and that changes things in this man's eyes. If he needs to marry Ruth, right, who is of childbearing age, and have a child with her, then the chance to redeem Naomi's land isn't such a good proposition. If he, has a, if he has a child with Ruth, then that son would be the rightful owner of the land he purchased. And suddenly, he would be responsible for raising another child, for caring for Naomi, for caring for Ruth, and all the costs that those things entail, and he wouldn't get anything out of the deal. He wouldn't get the land. And suddenly, this golden opportunity seems not so great. And so he quickly backs out of the deal and lets Boaz fulfill the role of redeemer. Picking up in verse 7. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Just a quick side note, like in Leviticus 25, right, this, or 35, we get the, the background for this, and back then, like, not only did you take off the sandal, right, but if a redeemer refused to do his job, right, he took off the sandal, and then he had his, like, face spat on. It was shameful to not fulfill this role. Like, but like Israel by this time had gone all progressive and like that doesn't sound so nice to spit in somebody's face and so they don't do that part but they still do the sandal thing. And so the guardian neighbor said to Boaz, buy it yourself and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malion. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite Malian's widow as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Right? So there's that name focus again. Today, you are my witnesses. And the elders and all the people at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. And so this is quite the prayer of blessing that the elders offer. They say of Ruth, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home, that's Ruth, like Rachel and Leah. Think for a minute. Rachel and Leah, they are the mothers of Jacob's 12 sons. They are the mothers of the sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. They are literally the mothers of the nation. Now the elders of this nation are hoping, are praying that Ruth becomes like them. That Ruth, the Moabite, the foreigner, She's being blessed by the elder so that she might become like Rachel and Leah. That's an incredible statement. 
Let's just think how far Ruth has come in this book. She starts out as a poor, destitute widow who has committed herself to this bitter old lady who will barely acknowledge her presence. She's a foreigner from a despised people living in Israel. She's a a social outcast. She's begging for food in the field. She calls herself Boaz's slave and then Boaz's servant. And now, all of a sudden, she's Boaz's wife. And the elders are equating her with Rachel and Leah. It's an incredible journey for four chapters. And it's all because Boaz was a willing redeemer. And so to be, to be a redeemer, to be a kinsman redeemer, you needed three things. First, you needed the, the right to be the redeemer. You also needed the resources to be the redeemer. And finally, you needed to be willing to be the redeemer. And the other kinsman, like, he had the first right. He had the right first of all. And he probably had the resources. It may not have been a financial boon to him to redeem Naomi's land, but he could have done it, more than likely. But he didn't have the willingness. And because he passes on his right, now Boaz has all three. He has the right to redeem, he has the resources to redeem, and he is willing to redeem. And because he is a willing redeemer, he changes everything for Naomi and Ruth. Pick up in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. So like throughout this whole book, like God's guiding hand has been seen working kind of behind the scenes, like through coincidences, through circumstances, right? but mostly God's been working behind the scenes. Right? But two places in the book the author intentionally brings God's work to the foreground. One of them is here. The Lord enables Ruth to conceive a son. And the other, back in chapter 1, verse 6, when we're told that the Lord came to the aid of his people and provided food for them. So, like remember, the two great needs, right? Food and family. And like these are the two things that we see God intentionally being told that we're being told that God intentionally actively meets the needs. He meets the two overarching needs of the book. He meets the need for food by bringing food back to Israel, and he need, meets the need for family by allowing Ruth to conceive. Picking up in fourteen, and the woman said to Naomi, "Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer." May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in old age. For your daughter-in-law, who, gives, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of Ruth. Not the father of the father of David. Right. So isn't it interesting? Like how these verses, like these last verses, right? Boaz and Ruth just kind of fade out of the story. Like suddenly the focus is on Naomi and her interactions with this baby boy. She's the one holding him. 
which, like, she's the grandma, so it fits, right? Like, when I'm, my mom's in town and we have a baby, like, I don't, I don't I'm out of the picture too, right? Like, it's, grandma's in charge, whatever. Like, do your thing. So it's, it's not surprising, right? But Boaz and Ruth fade out of the story. The focus is on Naomi. So Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. And the woman said, Naomi has a son. And the reason for this is because of that second great need, right? The need for family. It was Naomi, right? as Elimelech's wife, that must have an heir if the name of Elimelech was going to continue in Israel. And now that heir is here. The redemption of Boaz has brought about great joy for Naomi. Just like Ruth, like Naomi has been radically transformed throughout this story by the work of a willing redeemer. She starts out by fleeing God's promised land. And she goes to Moab. And she lost everything there. And she comes back hopeless, broken. But through God's care and through Boaz's willing redemption, her hopelessness turns to joy. This scene is just one of pure joy. This were a movie, right? This is where the credits would roll. Everyone would leave the theater happy. And that would be the end. But this is like a, this is like a Marvel, Marvel movie. So you have to stay through the credit for one more scene. A scene that zooms out and shows you that this, this little story of Boaz and Naomi and Ruth, this story of everyday people with everyday problems is part of a, something far bigger. Look at verses 18 to 22 with me. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boab. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. And that, that mention of David the importance and the significance of this story explodes. This story isn't just about God providing food for a couple of women and providing an heir for a family. This story becomes about how God is at work to achieve his purposes through everyday situations. This story that starts in the days of the judges, when there's no king, when everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, ends with a genealogy that leads to Israel's greatest king. Naomi and Boaz and Ruth never saw David become king. The length of their life was not long enough for them to see the full scope of how God was at work through their story. And there's a lesson there for us. The length of their life was not long enough for them to see how God worked through their lives. But even the narrator, by writing sometime after David, was able to see a more complete picture of how God used the story of Naomi and Boaz and Ruth to bring about his good purposes. He could see a a more complete picture, but even the narrator, even the author, couldn't see the full picture. Because to see the full picture would would require waiting around another thousand years or so after David's reign, which is like a long time to wait for another post-credit scene. But the wait is worth it. Here at the end of Ruth 4, 
This is not the last time we see this genealogy that leads from Perez to David. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. And starting in verse 3, we read, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez, the father of Hedron, Hedron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. That should sound familiar, because it's the same genealogy that ends Ruth, but it's in Matthew now. But in Ruth, the genealogy ends right there. But in Matthew, it keeps going. They go for 28 more generations before ending with Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. This story of redemption in the book of Ruth is in our Bibles to point us to the far greater redemption that is found in Jesus. When Boaz redeemed Naomi, he purchased for Naomi the right to the land and the opportunity for her name to continue. There was no greater curse in ancient Israel than to lose your land and to lose your name. And Naomi was on the brink of both. But through the redemption of Boaz, the curse is removed and it's replaced with blessing and joy. That's what Jesus does for us, but on a far greater scale. We are in debt to sin. We are slaves to sin. And the price we pay for our sin is death and eternity in hell. It is the ultimate curse. Even more than the loss of land or the loss of a name. That is the ultimate curse. And our only hope of avoiding that curse is through a Redeemer who will buy us back for God, to buy us out of slavery to sin. We don't have the ability to redeem ourselves. We need a Redeemer like Boaz, one who has the right to redeem us, one who has the resources to redeem us, one who has the willingness to redeem us. And three questions. One, does Jesus have the right to redeem us? Listen to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. For this reason, he, Jesus, had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. By taking on human flesh, By living among us in a sinful world, Jesus became our kinsman. He became like us. So he does indeed have the right to redeem us. Does Jesus have the resources to redeem us? In 1 Peter 1, verse 18, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Jesus' sinless life means that he has an infinite supply of righteousness 
through which he can redeem us by the shedding of his blood. Like he has the resources. And finally, it's Jesus willing to redeem us. Listen to Philippians 2, verse 6 through 8. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Does Jesus have the willingness? Jesus was so willing to redeem you that he gave up the glories of heaven. He humbled himself. He became like us. He endured mocking and beating and eventually death on a cross so that he could redeem you. That's how willing he was. Jesus is the willing Redeemer. The one who can turn our hopelessness into joy. He has the right, he has the resources, and he is willing. He only redeems those who acknowledge their need of redemption. Those who cry out to him for that redemption. So if you're, you're here this morning, you're watching online, like if you've never done that, you've never trusted Jesus, you've never confessed your need of redemption, your need of forgiveness. Right? And I urge you to do that. Jesus is willing to turn your hopelessness into joy if you put your trust in him. If you have more questions about what that means, what that looks like, I'd be more than happy to talk to you about that. If you've never done that, if you've never been redeemed, do that today. And for those of us who are here who have placed our trust in Jesus, right, who have been redeemed, then I hope this chapter, really this whole book, does two things for us. One, I hope this book gives us a, a renewed sense of God's goodness at work through his sovereignty. I hope this book gives us assurances right, that even when things are dark and hard and things seem grim, that God is at work to bring about good purposes in your life. Just think about Naomi. Like at the beginning of the book, when she's in the midst of her mourning over her dead husband and her dead sons, and she's bitter, and she's empty, and she's hopeless. I'm sure in that moment, she never could have imagined the day that she would hold that sweet baby Obed in her arms and rejoice. She never could have imagined that day. But even though she couldn't imagine it, God was at work to bring about his good purposes. The same thing's true for us. Maybe right now you're in the depths of some kind of despair. Maybe you're hurting. Maybe you're broken. Maybe you don't see how God can do anything good out of your present situation. But even if you can't see it, God knows. He is at work to bring about good. It may not happen even in this life, but the Bible assures us that at the end of the story, when the final chapter is written, when the final credits roll, like God brings about good for all his people. And the second thing I hope this, this chapter, this whole book of Ruth does for us, is that it causes us to see that we have a role to play in redemption history, in the way God is bringing redemption to the world. God used the ordinary lives of Naomi and Boaz and Ruth to eventually bring about the birth of his son. 
Like he, he used their ordinary lives to further his plan of redemption. And he does the same thing in our lives. Right? He uses us to advance his plan of redemption as we tell people about the wonderful news about the great Redeemer, Jesus Christ. How, how great is that? That the almighty God of the universe would invite you get to play our role in his great plan of redemption. He invites you to be part of seeing more and more people come to trust and know Jesus, the great Redeemer. And in particular, like this story ought to prompt us right, to see that no one is beyond the reach of God's plan of redemption. Like in Matthew's genealogy, there are three women who are mentioned from Abraham to David. They are Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. You know what all three of those have in common? They're all Gentiles. The only three women who are mentioned in that whole genealogy from Abraham to David are Gentiles. They are members of nations that were historically enemies of God's people, yet God worked in their lives for his purposes. No one is beyond the reach of God's work of redemption. And that should encourage us right, to reach out to those who we don't normally feel comfortable being around. Right? Who don't normally fit into our normal circle of friends. And we should be encouraged to reach out to those outside of our normal groups. To reach out to the nations. God is still doing great things to redeem people from every nation, from every social group, from every way of life. And he invites us to be a part of what he is doing. Through Jesus and through the Holy Spirit living in us, right? He has given us the right to be a part of His work of redemption. Right? Through the Holy Spirit in us, He has given us the resources to bring the story of redemption to others. The only question then is are we willing to play our part in that story? Are we willing to risk being uncomfortable? to risk hard things in order to see God's work of redemption extend to people around us. Let's pray that we are willing. Let's pray. Father, we pray to you, we thank you for the work you've done, the way your good and sovereign hand has guided all of history to bring every person in this room to this place right now. And whatever challenges each person here is facing, whatever hardships they are walking through, You've brought them here now, today, at this moment, for your good purpose. As we leave here, you go with us, having plans for us, inviting us to be part of what you are doing in the world. As we go here, as we go with confidence that you are working, even our trials, even our hardships, for good for your good purposes of redemption. That we praise you that you are 
sovereign, that you are good. That you have offered us a way of redemption through the blood of Jesus. Would we never take that lightly, would never take that for granted. Would we take seriously the call, the invitation to go and to share that good news with other people. In Jesus' name, amen. So a way of benediction this morning, if we leave here, hear these words from the book of Ephesians. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realm with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he freely which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he has lavished on us. May we leave here living for the glory of him who has lavished us with his grace through the redeeming work of his son. You are dismissed. No way.